morning, church. Would you guys stand and worship with us this morning?
Good morning. Welcome again to Shelby Christian Church. We're glad you guys are, are here today. Hey, last night um, during our, our Valentine banquet for couples, I was reminded um, from our speaker, Steve Wigging, about a passage of uh, Steve Wigington, about a passage of scripture in Romans chapter 5. I want to read that to you this morning as we get ready for just a moment of, of communion, of offering, uh, just for the next couple of moments. As we just kind of stop, we pause, we take a breath, and we're reminded of how great our God is and and what he's done for us. Here's what Romans 5, starting in verse 5, says. You see? At just the right time, when we were still powerless, another version says sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone, any, any one of the righteous man, um, through, for, I can't read this because I can't, there's a shadow, I'm sorry. Anyone die for the righteous man. Through for a godly, a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then he goes on to write this. The Apostle Paul says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more have we been reconciled? Shall we be saved through this life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him whom we have now received reconciliation. Last night we were reminded of of that first word that Paul kind of points out there, this demonstration of love. It's not enough, right, to just tell someone that you love them. There's this demonstration that usually needs to take place. Some of you will probably do that this weekend since Valentine's Day is tomorrow. You will demonstrate to your loved ones in some kind of act of, of kindness or a gift or whatever you choose to do how much you care about that person. 
God's love for us was demonstrated by what Jesus did on the cross. And then he uses another word there, reconciliation, to reconcile, to, to take a relationship that is uh, fraught with tension and distress and to bring it back together to make it healthy and whole again, to reconcile, to bring two parties back together again. And that's what God does for us through Jesus Christ on the cross. While we were still sinners, while we were still hostile towards God, Jesus, Jesus comes. And through the cross and through his body and through his blood, through his sacrifice, we are brought back in to a perfect relationship with our Lord and our Savior. And that's what we remember when we come to a time of communion. Would you guys pray with me? Lord God in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the reminder that we have this morning that in the middle of our powerlessness in the middle of our sin when we were hopeless and helpless you demonstrate this great love and that that love has a name and his name is jesus and in the middle of that you bring us back together with you you build a bridge between us and you and his name is jesus and so as we stop and we we take this bread it reminds us of a body that went to the cross and was broken for our sins. As we take this juice, it reminds us of blood that was shed, not for Jesus' sins, the blood of a innocent, holy man who died for, for us. And God, we know that, that in all of that, you are working that plan out for our good and all we can do this morning is pause and say thank you and remember we thank you for jesus and it's in his name i pray amen
Feeling 
Well, good morning, church. It's wonderful to be up here. This is not an endorsement for Dr. Pepper, but since it's Valentine's Day, I thought I'd start off with the story. This young man called his mother and excitingly announced he had found the woman of his dreams. His mother said, then why don't you send her flowers and invite her to your apartment for a home-cooked meal? The day after the big date, the mother called and see how things had gone. Mom, the evening was absolutely horrible. It was a complete disaster. Why? Didn't she come over? Yes, she came over, but she refused to cook. I hope this week that you've been enjoying the Olympics. I know I have. Um, Some of the stories that really stuck out to me was Chloe Kim. Uh, Her day at the half pike started off with the worst practice she had ever had. And a good thing she knows how to turn it on when it counts because she scored a 94 on her first run on the snowboard half pike. That's where you have the big thing and they go up and they do these flips and they come back down. It's incredible to watch. At just 17, she became the youngest snowboarder ever to win a gold. But now at 21, she's the only woman to win Olympic gold medals, multiple medals in the half pike. And the gap between her and her competition remains sizable. Then on Wednesday, snowboarder Lindsey Jacobus became the first American athlete to secure a gold when she won the women's snowboard cross event. That's where they race on those snowboards. In doing so, at 36, she became the oldest snowboarder to medal in the Olympics, while also earning her second medal in five Olympics. In addition to being the oldest American woman to win a gold medal, she said, this feels incredible because this level that all the women are riding in is a lot higher than it was 16 years ago. She said following her win to ESPN, so I felt like a winner just that I made it into the finals because that's been a challenge every time and all of these ladies had the potential to win. And today, it just worked out for me that my starts were good, my gliding was great, and everything worked for me. Then on Friday night, we saw her and Nick Baumgartner, who is 40, win the team snowboard race. And my wife and I were cheering for the old people. It was was really great to see. Some athletes have to overcome incredible odds to win the medals or the prizes that they desire. And families have to overcome the same incredible odds to stay together and win the prize of being a gold medal family. So this morning we're going to be reading from Philippians to continue in our series, Gold Medal Families. We're going to start in verse 12, if you'd like to follow along in your Bibles this morning. Chapter 2, verse 12. Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I am away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you live clean innocent lives as children of god shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people hold firmly to the word of life then on the day of christ's return I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. First point I want to bring up this morning is to keep working even when no one is watching. Now there is a natural tendency to work harder when you know your coach is watching. Now we all know that, but true winners work just as hard when the coach is absent. Now, gold medal families work on the family all the time, not just when crises arrive. 
They constantly work on honesty, communicating, consideration, and cooperation. Now, Doug Dockery was an American football coach for the Michigan State Spartans from 1954 to 1972. At the end of one game, Dockery sent in his kicker to win the field goal, to kick a field goal to win the game. Now, as the kick sailed through the uprights, the kicker looked at the referee. Now, you may ask why, but he had forgotten his contact lenses and he couldn't see the goalposts. Though he had had a very blurred outline, he had kicked that ball so many times that he realized that ball would go through the goals. Now, Paul tells us in Philippians to continue to work hard to show the results of our salvation. Or some of your Bibles may say, work out your salvation. Now, he's not talking about it as salvation by works. Instead, he is making some type of warning that he did in the Romans when he said, Shall we go on sinning so that grace will increase? Paul is reminding us that the Philippians, that God had been faithful and he wants you to see things through to the end, just as he has. Philippians 1 6 says, He who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul is also reminding us that God wants you to be confident throughout your Christian life, and especially in the end, where he wrote in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. The bottom line is that being a gold medal family will take a lot of work. Families who want to have that kind of success need to adopt the mentality that they are going to do whatever it takes. Coaches often tell their players to leave nothing in the tank, to make sure you leave it all on the line. I read a story this week about an old man. His hands trembled, and when he ate, he clattered the silverware distressingly. He missed his mouth, often with the spoon. He dribbled a lot on his food on the tablecloth, and now he lived with his married son, having nowhere else to live. And his son's wife didn't like the arrangement. I can't have this, she said. It interferes with my right to happiness. So her and her husband took the old man gently but firmly by the arm and led him to the corner of the kitchen where they sat him on a stool and gave him his food in an earthenware bowl. From then on, he always ate in the corner, looking wistfully at the table. One day, his hands trembled even more than usual, and the earthenware bowl fell and broke. You are a pig, she said. You must eat out of a trough from now on. So they made him a little trough, which he had to eat out of his meals. The man and the woman had a young son, and they were very, very fond of him. And one day they looked down, and the boy was making something out of wood. And his father asked, what are you making there? He says, well, I'm making a trough to build you and mommy when you get older. Adrian Rogers once tells a story about a man who had two sons who worked in their cornfields while their peers were spending their afternoon in the swimming pool. Someone asked the father, why do you need all this corn? Why do you make your boys work so hard? The wise father said, I'm not raising corn, I'm raising sons. Number two, do everything without complaining. A man who robbed a Wendy's in Atlanta was so put off by the skimpy hall that he called the restaurant twice to voice his complaints. That's better off than what Arthur Bundridge did. He went into Syracuse, New York Bank and robbed it. He went in and asked for $20,000. When he got home, he realized he didn't have $20,000, so he went back to the bank to complain, where he was duly arrested. Now, what is complaining? Murmuring and complaining, I like to define it this way. Murmuring and complaining is a repeated voicing of your dissatisfaction over the situation you are in. Now, it can come from several sources. 
Sometimes it comes from self-pity. You're feeling bad. You want to lick into your wounds and feel sorry for yourself. So you repeat all the woes that have beset you. Sometimes complaining comes from a desire of sympathy. You describe your your situation to anyone who will listen. And you want someone to come over and say, oh, you poor thing. Sometimes complaining comes from anger and bitterness. You prayed and you still have this problem and you get angry with God. And you want to tell someone how angry you are about the situation you're in. So you repeatedly voice the problem. Whether our complaining is from self-pity or sympathy or from a lack of of bitterness, murmuring, complaining always comes from unbelief. There is no complaint that rises from the heart of faith. Whether there is complaining, we can be sure that it is faith is no longer present. Now, a lot of us don't look at murmuring and complaining as something bad. For a lot of us, it's our favorite pastime. We get together and we say, you know what happened to me? And then we go on and say, but no, what should happen to me? Now, we all do it, right? Don't we? Come on, we can stay in here all day if you want. Come on. We all do it, right? We don't even think of it as being wrong. We think of it as normal. But God wants us to know that he hates murmuring and complaining. He does not take it lightly. In Numbers 11.1 1, it says, Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. God says he doesn't like it when we complain. He gets angry. In Numbers 14, God says, How long will I bear with this evil congregation? I have heard the complaints that they are making against me. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul said, Now these things happen as examples for us that we should not complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. And in Hebrews 3, God warns us, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me in the day of the trial in the wilderness. Take care, brethren, lest there be any evil and unbelieving heart. Out of the abundance of heart, the mouth speaks. When complaining comes out of your mouth, it means you have unbelief in your heart. So what's the alternative to complaining? I mean, some of us got so used to complaining, we're not, we're not happy. It's hard to think of what else to do. But what you do in the wilderness, but complain. And Israel, I mean, Isaiah 61 gives the answer. We are to put on a mantle of praise. Now, a mantle is like a cloak or a coat that we put on. And we should be praising God instead. And I think of Paul, and Paul's writing to the Philippians, but when he was in Philippi, right after God had given him a vision that he should go to Philippi. And when he went, he began to preach and he was arrested. Then he was beaten with many rods and many blows, Scripture says. And not only that, he was placed in prison, his feet were put in stocks. So while his back was bruised and bloody, they made him lay on his back, put his feet in his stocks. But did Paul complain? Instead, in prison, he praised God. He sang praises to the Lord. I can't imagine being in that kind of situation. But Paul learned to praise. Now, complaining spirits can ruin any group. We all know people that we don't like to be around because all they do is complain, right? Right? Well, there are four significant facts about complaining or murmuring you need to know. Complaining isn't supposed to happen in the church. Now, here's a potential Twitter feed. Dear sir, it seems that ministers feel their sermons are very important and spend a great time preparing them. I have attended church quite regularly for 30 years, and I probably heard 3,000 of them. To my consternation, 
I discovered I cannot remember a single sermon. I wonder if a minister's time might be more profitable spent on something else. For weeks, a storm of answers ensued. Finally, this one came. My dear sir, I have been married for 30 years. During that time, I've eaten 32,850 meals, mostly my wife's cooking. Suddenly I have discovered I cannot remember the menu of a single meal, and yet I had the distinct impression that without them, I would have starved to death long ago. Complaining in church is not something that is rare. Churches have split and fought over the silliest reasons. Like one, an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Two, fight over whether or not to build a children's playground or to use the land for a cemetery. Another church fought, deacon accused another deacon of sending an anonymous letter, and they decide to settle the matter in the parking lot. A church argument and vote to decide whether there should be a clock in the worship center. Another church fought 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase, black or brown, two, three, or four drawer. Another's dispute over whether the church worship leader should have shoes on during the service. Another big church argument over the discovery that the church budget was 10 cents off. Someone stood up finally and gave a dime. A dispute in the church whether the Lord's Supper had cran grape juice instead of just grape juice. Another business meeting over arguments over whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. That lasted for two months. Arguments over what type of green beans the church should serve. I'd vote none. Two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee. In one of the churches, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand, while in another church, they simply moved to a stronger blend. But members left the church anyway. There was a major conflict when the youth borrowed a crock pot that had not been used in years. Another church had an argument over whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church meal. There was another disagreement over the term potluck instead of pot blessing. And a church member was chastised because she brought vanilla syrup to the coffee bar and it looked too much like liquor. Some members left the church because one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from them. An argument also ensued over whether to have gluten-free communion bread or not. And another dispute over whether the church should allow black t-shirts, since black was the color of the devil. I kind of thought it was red, but that's okay. And the most common reason churches argue is over the color of the carpet in the sanctuary. Now all those things sound silly and stupid. There once was a Christian who was marooned on an island for several years, and he had built three huts. And he had a great big fire, and one day a ship came by and saw the fire and decided to investigate. So they go to the island, they ask the man, why do you have three huts? He says, well, one I live in, the other one I go to church in. He said, well, what's the other one for? Well, that's where I used to go to church. Now, the family is the smallest unit of the church, and the same no-complaining principle needs to apply to the family. One time, a man feared that his wife was going deaf, and maybe she needed hearing aids. So the doctor told him, well, I want you to do a little experiment. Come up from about 40 feet behind her and ask her a question, see if she answers. Then go 30 feet, then 20 feet, and finally five feet up to her. So he said, okay, I'll try that. So he came, was in home one day, and he got 40 feet away. He says, Marge, what's for dinner? No answer. So he goes 30 feet. Marge, what's for dinner? Still no answer. He goes 20 feet. Marge, what's for dinner? 
Still no answer. Goes 10 feet. Marge, what's for dinner? Still no answer. Finally goes up to her ear and says, Marge, what's for dinner? And she said, Fred, for the fifth time, I told you chicken. (laughs) Now, all couples have disagreements. Okay. Now, Carrie and I have been married 31 years, and I can honestly say the number of times we fought was probably less than 10 in our entire marriage. Now, we do have intense discussions. But what I can't understand is when sometimes couples fight, they call each other names, and they try and degrade each other, and they try and bring each other down. That is not the way God intended for a husband and wife to live. In fact, if you're complaining about your spouse to your friends, or especially to your family, you're not living in faith. I can tell you for certain that God intends for us to build each other up, not to tear each other down. A lady went to her pastor one day and said, I won't be going to your church anymore. And the pastor responded, but why? The lady said, Oh, I saw a woman gossiping about another member, a man that is a hypocrite. The worship team just isn't living right. And people are looking at their phones during the service and among so many other things that are just wrong with this church. The pastor said, okay, but before you go, do me a favor. I want you to take a glass of water and I want you to walk around the entire church. And afterwards, if you, just, you can leave if you desire. The lady thought, well, that's easy. So she walked around the church three times like the pastor asked her to do. And she came back to him and she says, okay, I've done it. He says, before you leave, I want to ask you a question. When you were walking around the church, did you see anybody gossiping? No. Did you see any hypocrites? Well, no. Anyone looking at their phone? No. Do you know why? She said, no. He said, you were forced to look at the glass to make sure you didn't stumble or spill any water. It's the same with our life. When we keep our eyes on Jesus, we don't have the time to see the mistakes of others. We will reach out a helping hand to them and concentrate on our own walk with the Lord. At the church, there are always going to be things to complain about. Because the church is full of people. And none of us are perfect. Only Jesus set the perfect example. So let's focus on him. Now Paul made it very clear. God doesn't want you to be complaining. Do everything he said without complaining. There were two monks once who walked around a river's edge. And they saw a woman sitting by the bank upset because there was no bridge. So one of the monks, so the monks offered to carry her across, to which she agreed. So the two monks joined hands and carried her across to the other side. So she thanked them and went on her way. After the monks continued on their journey a mile or two, the second monk began to complain about the pain in his back and the dirt on his clothes. And a few minutes later, the second monk griped again. My back is hurting badly. I cannot go on. And the first monk asked his fellow traveler, isn't your back hurting? He says, no. He says, the problem is you're still carrying the woman, but I set her down long ago. Now, complaining brought judgment of the Jews in the wilderness. Complaining is a series, is a flaw of sinners. It's part of the the human sinful condition. We grumble about long lines, prices, people, the weather, and so much more. But as I've read already in the book of Numbers, the Israelites murmured and complained against God until they so exasperated him that he threatened to destroy them. Now, I want to point that there's a difference between complaining and sharing with the Lord our problems. You see, the people of Israel, when they complained, they said, Oh God, why did you bring us out here? We could have just stayed with the Israelites and you brought us out here to the desert to die. Instead of saying to the Lord, Lord, 
We're hungry and we're thirsty. We know you have a plan. Please provide for us. You see the difference? The people of Israel, six times in numbers, some form of murmur appears. After all the miracles the children of Israel had seen God do, parting the Red Sea, through all the plagues and everything, they complained so bitterly that God had a constant rumbling heard from their camp. They complained about the food and the water. They complained about the manna from heaven. They complained about they had no meat. They grumbled and rebelled against Moses' leadership. And the people even complained about God's judgment that resulted from their complaints. Now when we complain, we bring judgment upon ourselves. Now people blame God for one or more misplaced reasons. One, we don't know whom to blame when we have a problem. Or two, we expect God to override the consequences of our personal failures. Or three, we expect God to fix immediately what we've taken years to progressively damage. This could be true of both our health and our children. The third point I want to bring up this morning is believe that the effort is worth it all. Why would you do all of this? Well, 1 Corinthians 9.24 says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do not get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it a slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. You do this so that you won't be disqualified for the prize. One man said, perspective is everything. It's not what we see, but the way we see it. When we change the way we look at things, things we look at change. Abraham Lincoln said, most of us are just about as happy as we make our minds to. So my final thought today is, God, gold medal families are those to find the thrill of victory by overcoming the agony of defeat. John Stephen Akwar was a marathon runner from East African nation of Tanzania. In October of 1968 in the Mexico City Olympic Games, he was running in this extreme heat and humidity. And he got to the point to where he stumbled and he fell. And he hit his shoulder and damaged his shoulder and he fell on his knees and he's bloody, but he dislocated his knee. And the medical people kind of ran out and told him, you need to stop running. You need to stop. But he got up and continued running. And then he hobbled and he jogged and he eventually walked until he made it into the stadium an hour after the winner had already made it past the line. There were only a few spectators left in the Coliseum, and they all cheered for him as he made it around his last lap and across the finish line. And when he was done, media went up to him and asked him, why did you continue after you fell? He said, my nation did not send me 5,000 miles just to run a race. They sent me to finish it. How are you going to finish in your faith? How are you going to do what Christ has asked us all to do? Which is just to finish faithfully in the race. Let's pray together. Father God, we just praise you this morning. 
And Father, I know that all of us complain. All of us here have grown complaining out of unbelief. Help us, Father, to look at our lives with blessings instead of complaints. Help us all to see the great, great things that you have given to us. And Father, I pray this morning that there's someone here who does not know you, that they will take this moment, Father, to come and to accept you into their hearts. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Jason's over at the decision room. If you feel like you need prayer this morning or you want to make a decision, let's stand together and sing. Double make room for you to do whatever you want to, to do whatever you want to. Double make room for you to do whatever you want to, to do whatever you want to. Shake up the ground for my tradition. Break down the walls for my religion. Your way is better. Your way is better. So shake up the ground for my tradition. good to be in God's house today. Amen. Amen. Uh, if you're new with us this morning, I want to remind you that we have an I'm new wall out there. Go out there and they're going to give you a free gift and just kind of give you a good talk to. And um, I remind you also the pathways we have on February the 22nd. That's our on-ramping onto church. So be blessed as you go from today. Love God, love people, go change the world.